morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for the latest Downtown Den event. And we're delighted to be joined by Olympian Goldie Sayers, uh, one of Britain's uh, most successful uh, athletes during her time in the sport. And uh, we're going to talk to Goldie about her career, uh, but also uh, her thoughts in terms of um, what sport will look like post COVID 19. Uh, and many other things besides. And uh, Goldie, lovely to have you with us this morning. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Morning, Frank. Good to virtually see you. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that we're always keen to draw out of these discussions with uh, champions, which of course you are, uh, is that mindset and that psychology that drives people to success because we often say that in business you know unless you've got that determination and commitment and the same sort of attributes mm. that you will often find in successful sports people uh, then actually you're not going to go particularly far mm. uh, and you know the drive and commitment that you need from a very early age actually in terms of the sport that you were involved in uh, it, it is incredible and not many people uh, get to the heights that you got to uh, in your particular sport. So first thing I'm going to ask you is, you know, let's take you back to your teens, which is when you started to really take sport seriously and how you managed uh, when, you know, most people of your age would have been going out and exploring different activities, if I can put it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to discipline yourself to the point where you did, uh, to get to the level that you did. Um, I think, to be honest, I did a lot of different sports, so I didn't specialise until I was 18. So I wasn't, as some kids are now, kind of shoehorned into one sport and then dedicating everything and foregoing social life and everything. So actually I did have quite a balanced um, kind of teenage years um, and then decided to specialise at 18. So I was a kind of a generalist really. And I think playing netball, hockey, tennis, all those sports and team sport primarily helped in athletics um, because in throwing a javelin, you need to be coordinated, have good balance awareness and all the things that team sports give you. So. So I think one of the reasons that I had a longer career was because I didn't specialise too young. Um, and that makes you a bit more motivated to focus on that one thing. So I did have a, a, a relatively normal childhood. I was just playing a lot of sport, but I loved it. So I didn't think of it as a sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, and what made you decide in the end that the javelin was going to be the sport that you would focus on? Um, I, I was progressing quite quickly and had a good coach I enjoyed it um I was just lucky in that a good coach happened to be roughly within my area and I think I struggled a little bit in hockey and netball trials because I had a brown hair and a ponytail and looked like everyone else I <laughs> didn't sort of stand out so much or I just wasn't good enough um so yeah I just progressed a lot and I think I think possibly an individual sport suited me in that you know that you kind of have to rely on yourself and um you're very accountable and you've either done the distance or you haven't and there's no politics around selection or 
uh, you can effectively select yourself because you have to throw a certain distance to make a team or Olympics or whatever it is. So, um, so that kind of suited me a lot, I think, as well. Uh, and then in terms of you decide you're going to focus on that sport, what was your initial ambition? Did you, you know, wake up one day and think, I want to represent Great Britain in the Olympics? Or were your initial goals um, far smaller than that? Yeah, I think um, I remember watching the Barcelona Olympics when I would have been, what, 10, and thinking, wow, I'd love to compete for Great Britain at sport. And at that stage, I was playing every team sport. And I actually used to watch athletics and think, there is no way on God's earth that I will be competing for Great Britain in athletics because everyone looks well, it looks like a complete freak show and so far removed from school sports day. <laughs> um, but then obviously I was handed a javelin. I could always throw a ball a long way and just fell in love with it. And then I think when you start, you want to, you know, go to the English schools championships. Then I won that and then had my first England schools international. Then you want a GB junior international. And so each time you kind of set yourself a goal or it's mainly a distance goal, really, and a process goal that achieves the best or whatever um then you know at age 18 I kind of realized you know I've got quite a good chance of going to the next Olympics I'd only missed out on the Sydney Olympics by a couple of meters um so I kind of knew that I could go to an Olympics and that's when I started to really kind of hone in on that but I didn't I don't think I ever I dreamt of competing for my country but I don't know whether I ever dreamt of actually winning an Olympic medal or something until it became a reasonable goal to kind of strive for. For me, it was more about mastery actually than it was about anything else. I just wanted to see how good I could be at something. Mm. Um, and I feel at the end of my career, I at least tried everything and put everything into it. So I knew I got as much as I could out of it really. You mentioned that there was a, a local coach um, that really uh, helped you decide that javelin was going to be the sport for mm. you. Um, was that the coach who took you through the early stages of your career or were there other people that then you started to connect with? Because I think it's important, yeah. isn't it, to surround yourself with the right people yeah. whenever you want to achieve great Yeah, things. yeah. So he, I obviously started at school. I was given a javelin to take home over the school Easter holidays. <laughs> which wouldn't happen now for health and safety. <laughs> and um, he actually just happened to be passing by a clubhouse at a local, I think it was a county schools competition, and my PE teacher just made him come and watch one throw and then invited me to train at the club, which I did, and then made a huge improvement. So I, I'm sure if I hadn't have met him, then I would have plateaued a lot earlier and probably dropped out or something because it is a technical event and you do need you know coaching and yeah it's the same in any industry I mean now in my business I employ a coach or two coaches um, because you don't know what you don't know and it stops you making potential mistakes and yeah I'm a massive believer in having the right people around you I mean certainly in sport if you want to be in the best in the world then you need you know the best coaches you can find and best sort of therapists and nutritionists and the whole team so so yeah no I'm a big believer in having the right people uh, and just before we we get on to what I think is is one of the best Olympic stories that uh, that I've ever been told, um, <laughs> I, I just want to talk about 
those early successes because again it's it's very easy isn't it to jump to okay I was throwing the javelin and then I end up in the Olympics um, I mean what I looked at in terms of your career was just how much you smashed the whole British game you know you were absolutely top of the tree consistently mm. so to get to that level you know to be the best of the best in Great Britain it is some achievement and as you're going through that journey you know what are the sort of disciplines that you required because listen as I say the Olympics absolutely fabulous but I'm sure most people in the country would just be happy to say well you will be the best in Great Britain at whatever given thing you choose to be you did that and you did it consistently for many years so what was it that just kept you going and, and tell us a little bit about how that journey uh, progresses yeah well I think the biggest thing is just consistent sort of baby steps and each day just doing everything to the best of your ability when you put all those days together over the course of the year you can have made massive progress I think having the willingness to learn is a big thing and being aware that you don't know everything and that you need challenging and having the right people around you um you know I when I was younger obviously didn't train that hard but obviously you know by the time I was 18 20 it'd be 12 sessions a week you know 49 weeks a year so I always do the calculation but you've effectively done about 1700 hours of training over a year and if you put that into an Olympic cycle it's about 7,000 hours of training um each throw in an Olympic stadium lasts about four and a half seconds and you get three attempts basically. <laughs> and if you have a bad day, you can effectively have done 7,000 hours of training for 13 and a half seconds performance. So you do have to be a bit mad as well. I think we kind of overlook that sometimes. You do, I mean, you do, you really do just have to have the sort of desire and, you know, motivation to want to do it. but. I think in sport, the highs are so high that, you know, even if you have three years that are terrible, but you have one sort of Olympic success, it keeps you going for another four years. Um, but I think, you know, I think, I mean, I, I coached a lot of people now and I think, you know, the ability to set goals and actually go through that process is really important. And I don't think people talk enough about how to set goals and how to actually achieve them. They, people know they need goals, but then actually how to get to the end product is, is something that people struggle with. And it does take time. I mean, I took me eight years from picking up a javelin to going to my first Olympics, which, you know, is quite a long time. Um, and yeah, and I didn't throw my best till I was 30. So you know, that was probably 17 years or so. So you do have to love it. I mean, that's inevitable. So you're very unlikely to succeed in something you don't enjoy at least, you know, 80% of. Um, and it is just, it is just hard work, effectively. That There is no escaping that. There's no sort of overnight sensations. And I think certainly in sport, people talk about talent all the time. But, you know, I trained with so many people who were wildly talented but didn't have the the kind of the ability to stick with something for long enough or make difficult decisions. I think that's a big part of it as well. Knowing when you need to find someone else to coach you or have someone else come into the team or, 
you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think there's a, a whole host of factors, but I think having passion for what you do is number one, certainly. And, and again, so many synergies with business there goes yeah. because uh, again, you have to freshen your team up. You have to have those goals in place. Uh, and as you say, you know, you have to love and enjoy what you do. Otherwise, like the others, you're not going to be successful. Um, let me take you back then to the first major success that you had um, and, and what that felt like. So you're doing all these hours of training. You're obviously setting yourself particular goals at particular times. But there must have been one thing where you've thought, yet yeah, this is the breakthrough. So it may not have been the very first uh, victory or event win, but mm. where you've actually thought to yourself, yeah, I've cracked it now. I can get to those Olympic Games. I think, yeah, I mean, my first English schools win was quite a big deal because I didn't know anything about it and it, I threw quite a long way. But I think the most significant performance was probably actually still my best performance throughout my career was, I think, my first British junior international. It was at, just at Loughborough, actually, and you, I think we competed against the best like British seniors and then the home countries and British students and we were the sort of British junior team. I threw 51-92 and as throws go, it was, you know, a fairly as close to perfect throw at that time um, and that suddenly meant that I qualified for World Junior Championships but I was only 15 so that was like an under 20 competition and, and so it was quite a significant performance and I just remember I had my GCSE English exam the next day and I just couldn't focus I couldn't concentrate so I did quite badly in that but um, yeah no that was probably the most significant early sort of breakthrough as it were. Yeah. So let's fast forward then. Tell us about these first Olympics and um, tell us about the build up to that and, and what being part of Team GB um, feels like. And, and actually, you know, it is, although yours is a very individualistic sport, yeah. is there a feeling when you get involved in the Olympic Games as part of that Team GB that it is a team effort? Or do you still very much feel as though, well, no, my event's my event and I'm on my own here? No, it's very much a team. So you're, you're part of, obviously, the British Athletics team. And then certainly I did three Olympic Games and certainly around London or just before that, we did a lot of work around one Team GB in that, you know, you're so many different sports teams coming, to one, coming together as one team. And there is power in having a team. So, you know we all made sure we subscribed to the same sort of values and, you know, made sure we were all the same kit on the same day, which is a little thing, but on mass around an Olympic village, it's quite intimidating. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even in the Olympic dining halls, the size of about two football pitches at least. So just to be able to spot your fellow teammates, because everyone's got the same similar kit, if it's sponsored by Adidas or whatever it is. So, um, so yeah, there is sort of great, I think power in the team. Um, my first games were Athens, and you know I, I was 21, and um, it's you know it's an incredible experience. I think getting the kit is always one of the biggest kind of highlights of any athlete's career, and they make a really big thing about that now. But yeah, just being on the same team as some of your heroes and um, experiencing something that really is quite unique. Um, I've always had the habit of sharing with 
Olympic gold medalist. So I was in Kelly Holmes' apartment in Athens. So I saw her whole winning of, you know, two Olympic gold medals. And it's those kind of moments that are quite special. Um, so yeah, it's just an incredibly proud, special moment. Um, the, the only, I guess the only downside of being an athlete in a way is that you, it becomes normal to go to an Olympic Games, be in teams with these great athletes. And it is quite normal, but it absolutely, you know, actually, and certainly when you retire, you, you know that it's not normal, but yeah. it's whatever industry you're in, that becomes your new normal. So you, you don't think you take it for granted, but at the time I think you do just because you don't know any different. So I think actually coronavirus for athletes could be a good thing in terms of, I always think that an athlete needs a year out just to really appreciate what they do do. And normally, so occasionally that will come with injury, but with this, it's effectively going to be a year out of competing um, that's enforced, which then should make people really appreciate, you know, competing and training next year. I don't know, that's my theory anyway. <laughs> An interesting point, and we'll, we'll come back to that actually uh, later on. So what were your first Olympics then? Where are we? So that was Athens in 2004. Um, and then I did... I. I performed quite well. I think it was the second best I'd ever thrown, but I just missed out on the final by a few centimetres because at that level, everyone's sort of at similar kind of levels. Um, and then went on to Beijing, which was my sort of most successful Olympic Games. And then London, I think, would have been, but I managed to tear an elbow ligament three weeks before. So that ended up being a bit of a nightmare, but a sort of lovely nightmare if you can have such a thing <laughs> yeah so let's talk about Beijing then uh, as you say your most successful uh, Olympics um, but of course you, you didn't get that special moment of, of standing on the podium uh, despite the fact that uh, you were uh, a, an Olympic medal winner uh, and as I said at, at the outset this is one of the best stories I've heard um, <laughs> Sad in some ways, but of course, um, in other respects, at least justice was eventually done. Uh, so tell us the tale, Goldie. So, um, so yeah, the Beijing Olympics, I threw 65-75, which was um, a British record, a personal best, but also the furthest ever thrown in Olympic history by somebody not winning a medal. So I finished in fourth place, 38 centimetres off an actual medal on the day. But then because of all, well, effectively all the Russian doping scandal, a girl who finished in silver medal position um, was, her sample I think was retrospectively tested and found to have basically had a steroid in it. So she was stripped of her medal, but she appealed. So it took years and years. So that was eight years on, I found out that there was a you know, negative result with a Russian athlete, but then she appealed that decision so, but I found out, I think in 2016, I was still trying to compete, but it was the last year of my career. And, you know, you, you're desperately clinging on to some semblance of what you used to be, but I kind of knew um, it was going to be a struggle to compete at my fourth games. And I was driving, I'd been on a training camp in the States. I'd just come home. Um, and I said to my mum, I'll meet you at, you know, in Newmarket where I grew up. I'll meet you at Waitrose, we can have a coffee and then I'll go on to training. And as I was driving down the M11, I got a phone call to say that a Russian athlete who 
finished ahead of me had failed retrospective doping tests. So I'd be upgraded from, um, you know, fourth place to Olympic bronze. Um, so effectively, I won a medal driving down the M11 um, and <laughs> celebrated said medal with a coffee and waitress. <laughs> so it was certainly memorable. And then what was nice was that I was then going to go on and do a throwing session with my first two coaches. So the first three people who found out were the most significant in my sort of certainly early journey. So, yeah, but when I tell that story, I didn't have my waitrose card, so it wasn't even a free coffee. So. So, yeah. And they didn't set a little podium up for you in waitrose? So no, that you could... no, I didn't. I don't think I told the story. It would have sounded a bit odd. And then it was, um, so that was 2016, and then I actually had it awarded at the anniversary game, so in the Olympic Stadium in London last summer. So that was how long it took for the, you know, legal process. And um, you have to hand your certificate back. It's very funny. So you get a certificate at the Olympics, um, the top eight, I think. So I had to send my fourth place certificate back before you can get your Olympic medal. And it's all, there's bureaucracy. So, I mean, that, as I say, it's, it's a great little story and anecdote. Um, but equally, you know, when you've thrown personal best, great British record, and you're literally centimetres away from a medal, which is what you thought at the time in Beijing, um, did you come away from that game feeling positive? Or was there something within you that thought, if only, um, you know, if I'd have done something a little differently? You know, what, what were your emotions at that time? Um, yeah, I mean, I sort of, you know, we had our suspicions. I mean, we sort of knew it was the stage where you kind of knew Russian athletes were cheating, but you didn't have any evidence and you couldn't really say anything because there was no evidence and you're not there to police your own sport. So um, I kind of knew that I should have won a medal. So it was quite difficult, motivationally kind of going again. But then we had 2012 to look forward to. So that helped. Um, but the following year, I, don't, I did actually have an injury and I'm sure it was kind of quite emotionally driven in a way. Um, so it was quite difficult to sort of pick myself up and go again because there was this feeling of, you know, what more do I need to do? Every other Olympics I would have medaled. I think in Rio it was enough to win. Um, so it was just, it was frustrating. It's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Success, like you can have, you can perform out of your skin and come forth or you can have an average day and win there's a lot of people who've done that at olympics it just really depends what everyone else does and that's the one thing you can't control so um so yeah it's um it's certainly a an interesting story but i'm looking <laughs> i can see the medal there i've got like a stag um in the kitchen and little i don't know it's, it's hung around this stag's neck above the bin it's kind of i just thought i better have it out the medal because i thought i'd be really attached to it but actually it's not you know you're not actually attached to the tangible thing like it doesn't it sort of is a there was like a fun run medal around that before that so um so yeah and it just goes to show that it's the process that you're most grateful for i've got huge gratitude for my career and i could be really you know bitter and angry about it and there's an element of that but you know there's nothing you can do and um yeah it's um it, you know you're just grateful for the people you met and the lessons you learned and all the behaviors and attitudes and that sort of thing that you can take into other things mm. uh, and you've also mentioned that of course 
the 2012 games um, were on the horizon then because four years in the world of an athlete it is goes by in the flick of an eye doesn't it and, yeah, and, and, and of course that would have give you a tremendous amount of focus because of course it's in London and mm. so you know at that point uh, that is a big deal um, it was for, for everybody concerned um, I just want to get in briefly to the politics of, of that games because uh, I mean, again, it's easy now, isn't it, to look back at that time and say, oh, wasn't it a wonderful Olympic Games? And we all had a great time and celebrated the fact that we could put on such a great show. Yeah. But remember when it was announced that we were actually going to bid for them? Um, you know, there was an awful lot of criticism, wasn't there, about yeah. the fact yeah. that we were going to be spending all this money on an Olympic Games. And, you know, there's people living in poverty and there's this and there's this and there's this. And I think, you know, what it demonstrated to me and as somebody who'd seen the Commonwealth Games in Manchester and then something that was called the European Capital of Culture in Liverpool, you know, I appreciate that these things can actually act as a catalyst for so much good. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, at the time, a brave decision, wasn't it, from the politicians who were involved and then, of course, the executives from, you know, British um, the, the Olympic Committee, I'm not sure what we call it in, in the UK, there's an athletics board and we'll come on to the politics of that as well. Um, but, you know, it was a brave decision, as I say, and, and turned out to be a risk that was well worth taking. Um, so the 2012 Games, as I say, Goldie, big deal for you. And then you do masses and masses of preparation for that. So um, I, I don't want this to turn into, you know, I don't want you crying at the yeah. end of this. But <laughs> yeah. nonetheless, um, you you were so near yet so far in the end with that, weren't you? Yeah, I think um, I, yeah, so after Beijing, it was quite an injury-prone Olympic cycle for me, just through accidents of, I fell off a box and needed knee, knee surgery. Oh, training, not dancing. Um, and it really hurt my hip. I've got a watch beeping somewhere. Um, and I basically had been thrown quite a long way. I was consistently in the top probably five at Diamond League meetings, which are the sort of top tier meetings. And then we had the last Diamond League in London three weeks prior to the London Olympics in 2012. And everyone who was going to be competing for medals was going to be there. Um, and I actually threw the furthest I'd ever thrown another personal best British record in the first round and literally kept on throwing pretty much as far in quite bad condition. I be was beating the world record holder by two meters um, and I just felt like I kind of got it nailed and really technically had found a tiny thing that was making quite a big difference and just my rhythm was good, speed was good, everything was brilliant. Um, and I just went over to my coach and said, right, I'll take one more throw. I didn't normally pull out of competitions early, but I kind of knew that I'd won it. Um, and in that one more throw, I just threw slightly out the side of my shoulder, put a bit more stress on my elbow, which I've done millions of times, but I was exerting quite a lot of force and managed to partially tear my ulnar collateral ligament, the ligament on the inside of your elbow, which obviously isn't ideal when you're trying to throw a javelin 30 meters per second. So, um, yeah, that was three weeks prior to the Olympics. It was a partial tear, so there was a chance that I could compete and. I did everything I could to get fit and I could train everything and do everything apart from throwing a javelin. It was just excruciating. So 
but we did a fitness test three days prior to the Olympics and I was fine. I just didn't throw it sort of hundred percent. I was about 85 and actually felt fine. So then tried to compete in qualifying in the basically the first round I threw with more intensity and um, the partial tear became a full blown rupture. So, but you, what's strange when you're so focused, you don't feel pain at all. So I didn't realize that I had nothing connecting my upper and lower arm. Oh. <laughs> tried oh. to throw twice, but it was a bit like one of those dreams where you're trying to run and you can't. So yeah, it, it was a bit of a nightmare, but as a, you know, spectacle and, you know, being able to watch teammates and training partners kind of become household names and things like that was amazing. And, and it was, you know, an incredible games. And, and I think worth every penny, if you speak to anyone now, you know, they're, they, they were a bit like, you know, it'd be great to go back to that again. I just think we organised it so well in terms of making sure businesses in London, you know, work from home and everything was in place. And from an athlete perspective, it was great. I think spectators thought it was great. And um, yeah, I just think we did a great job. So in my opinion, worth every penny. And, and, nice, and what's nice is that we have used venues and um, I actually was in the Olympic Village not that long ago and and you know that's all housing now Stratford's completely um kind of you know it's revolutionized that area really so I don't think we went we didn't get too much wrong I think on that front. No it was a tremendous uh, couple of weeks wasn't it and the, the whole country I think did get a boost from it. Uh, apologies to anyone who's uh, eating the breakfast, as uh, Goldie described, her injury at that. Yeah. Uh, that would <laughs> really put you off your It's disgusting. I've got a photo of the surgery. So. Yeah. Uh, that, now, listen, it would be very easy um, for somebody to go through those experiences that you went through. So, being quite literally robbed uh, of a bronze medal in Beijing, uh, then throwing the best they've ever thrown and not being able to demonstrate that on the biggest stage. Uh, and, you know, in your own country as well, it, amongst what is arguably the best Great British team that we've ever assembled. I mean, what a fantastic array of talent that we were able to present at that Games. Um, and, and I'm sure, listen, you know, as much as we say the organisation of the Games was fantastic, and of course it was, uh, ultimately this is all about the people who are out there performing on the country's behalf. And, and as much as, as I say, I think it was a great organisation and it was a fabulous Games. I think the success just added another 50% to it, didn't it? You know, yeah. We wouldn't have won all those medals. I don't think we would have felt quite as good about ourselves. And I think that then... Forget, though, there, is it, that it, what people forget at those Games is it actually took quite a long time for us to win our first medal. So yeah. in the team, there was a slight level of panic that we weren't going to win or be successful. And obviously that's, you know, first and foremost, but yeah, we ended up, it was the most successful games um, up to that point. And then obviously Rio kind of topped it, which wasn't actually expected. So, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So definitely more Olympic medalist than we used to get. Certainly. Yeah. And, and the, just, just very quickly sticking with those Olympics because we, we did win the, mm -hmm. the host bid. Do you think that then, enabled the sport to attract and demand more funding from government and other sources. Was there then a, a notable shift in terms of support for athletics or had that something, something already been happening beforehand? 
No, I think it, it was already happening, which is why we were so successful. Um, if lottery funding came in in 96, when we came back from the Atlanta Olympics with only two medals in total, um, compared to the 63 medals in London, I think it was. So that funding just enabled, you know, coaches to be paid, like the infrastructure to be there, medical, you know, physio support, all the support services that you need to have to be the best you can be. So it was all in place. I think it's not necessarily changed since. It's just, we are very well funded, but I think, you know, I think people enjoy the Olympics and do get a lot out of it. And I think, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great way to spend money. Although, you know, it is very, the lottery funding is there for winning medals, most of it. And that obviously we need the grassroots funding as well, which is there too. I think with sport is actually very well funded. It's just obviously how those funds get utilized that can be good or not so good, um, according to who you speak to. <laughs> Uh, and so, as I say, I'm going to go back to this mindset thing now, Goldie, because as I say, those sort of knocks uh, and disappointments um, would have left an awful lot of people on the floor uh, thinking, you know, life just isn't fair. And, mm. you know, it doesn't matter how hard I try, what I do in terms of training and commitment, you know, there's always some something out there that, that's just not allowing me to, to meet my full potential. Uh, but of course, that's not Goldie Sayers. Um, what you then decide to do is um, recognise the fact that the career is starting to come to uh, an end. And as you say, you know, you, you continue for as long as you possibly could. Um, but then, of course, you started to move into other areas of your life. Uh, and our sponsors today uh, are VSI Executive Education. I know you've done uh, a lot of work with those guys as well. But just tell us your journey since retiring from sport and the array of things that you've managed to involve yourself in since. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's always an interesting time retiring from sport because it's such a big part of your identity. And I think that's where a lot of athletes go wrong is their athlete, athlete identity is so high that they then um, struggle to find another identity because they don't have any other you know, areas of interest or um haven't had like a dual career or whatever i mean i always studied during my athletics career um and you know try to have as much balance as i could i mean i still was very much first and foremost an athlete so when i initially tried uh, retired i just tried lots of different things i um kind of did a, like an internship in a you know um sort of occupational psychology firm thinking that that would be wildly interesting and realized it had its place but not wildly interesting um, I then knew I couldn't sit at a desk because I just physically can't sit down for hours and then. Um, I, you know, I've always been interested in physio and I did a massage qualification. I did some personal training just to kind of keep in contact with stuff that I know a lot about and could help people with. But I'd always, um, I'd moved several times for training and I'd read um, a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was about 21 and so understood um, kind of leverage and um, investing in like income producing assets. So I had a bit of a residual income when I retired from rental property, from moving from Loughborough to Cambridge, Cambridge to London, and had never sold the house. I'd always 
you know, remortgaged them and moved. So I kind of thought, why don't I learn how to do this properly? So then since I've got quite heavily involved in property investment and have, um, you know, built, you know, quite a nice portfolio and business around that, you know, I do some social housing, some just private buy to let stuff. Um, and, you know, it's lovely to be able to, we have so many houses in this country that are empty and derelict. And I think if we brought all those back into use, then the housing crisis wouldn't be so prevalent. So that's what I try to do effectively. My business is buy ugly houses, do them up, rent them out. I mean, it's as simple as that really, but there's a bit more to it. But um, I spent some time really kind of understanding the business. I've got mentors and coaches who I can bounce ideas off and help me. And yeah, I love it. And I just love being able to give people nice places to live and, you know, help people. I do a lot of work with a homeless charity, um, asylum seeker, um, housing, and so lots of different things. And I've got some cracking tenants who, you know, who are lovely and yeah, I kind of, I love it. So, yeah. And again, it goes back to that uh, point you made earlier. You've got to really enjoy what you do uh, yeah. and love what you do to, to make it successful. Um, what was the motivation to, at, you know, at a relatively late age, go back into education? Because that's what the VSI course mm. is. Were the particular things that you wanted to take from that course? Was, did you go into that with a particular goal in mind? Um, because um, obviously that does start to link, doesn't it? The educational side of things, that sports mindset and what you can potentially do with those things combined. Yeah, I think I, I would, I mean, I really love sport and I've sat on some um, boards in the past and I thought, you know, do I want to get involved with the kind of governing body side of sport? Um, and I may yet do that. So it was a sporting directorship masters and I'm, I'm quite keen on sort of culture and organizational leadership. Um, cause I just think it just has such a huge impact on performance on the pitch or track or whatever it is. So, um, so yeah, I did that masters and met some great people. I'm just at the moment really enjoying building my business, but I still do have quite a lot of, um, involvement in sport. I was on the um, British Olympic Association Athlete Commission for a long time um, and the same for athletics. So, um, you know, I'm a trustee of a charity that helps kind of young athletes. And so it, for me, it was, I like learning. That's why I do lots of different things. So, um, so that was the primary objective of it. It wasn't necessarily to use it for anything in the short term, but it might be something that I use long term, but I draw on, you know, some of the stuff I learn quite regularly. I do quite a lot of coaching, exact coaching with an energy company as well. So, um, so yeah, I just like, I like learning. So that's sort of first and foremost. Yeah. <laughs> and just in terms of where we find ourselves at the moment, both in terms of your own current business, but also in terms of sports. So this COVID-19 challenge is something nobody could have envisaged and it's mm -hmm. clearly a challenge for all of us in business um, but the business of sport uh, is being massively effective yeah. affected rather 
include, of course, the cancellation of an Olympics. Um, so, you know, you will be feeling for some of those athletes who you'll know are going through a really difficult time. And there'll be athletes, won't there, of a certain age yeah. who will have said, this is great news for us because, you know, if you're 17, 18, 19, it probably gives you a chance of being catapulted into a position where you didn't anticipate you were going to be. But equally, if you're somebody who's coming towards the twilight of the career, it would be bloody catastrophic. Yeah. So that that was a bad, de- you know, that was a bad or a good decision, depending on which way you look at it. Your take was interesting. Giving athletes a year out might actually be a good thing. Mm. But then again, there's all the financial implications of sporting mm. cancellations, isn't there? Because, you know, more than any other industry sector, I guess, sport relies on those ticket sales, people coming through the turnstiles to watch people compete. Where do you think sport could be by the end of all this? Do you think it will come back stronger or do you think there's some adaptations that are going to have to be made? I think there'll have to be sort of short-term adaptations and, you know, I think there's going to have to be some clever things done with TV and, you know, I think it's interesting how much people or sports fans have missed mm. watching live sport, which is why the Belarusian Football League has done quite well, <laughs> which people never would have watched before. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think things like cricket potentially, you know, there is a level of social distancing. It's just how you get crowds back into games and when that can happen. But you know, the only reason we all earn money or, you know, is to spend it on cultural activities, so sport, music, um, the arts, and, and those are the things that are the things that make life great. So I think you, we do need to find some way of reintroducing them, how that happens, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, having nobody in the stadium initially might be the thing, or, or a scaled down version of the sport, um, you know, you could have one event, say, in athletics and televise that. There's been some of that happening online, so pole vault competitions between a few athletes in the world who have pole vault beds, like, at home in their gardens randomly. <laughs> um, so I think we just need to get a little bit cleverer about it, but, I mean, I think it has to return at some point, but I mean, it's just how long this goes on for whether there will be a vaccine or whether there won't be but certainly in the short term I think for the next year it's gonna there's gonna be a lot of sort of lifestyle changes. Interesting um, that you know question coming in on on the chat here is um, that point that you just made about sports adapting and uh, you know as an athlete how much of a um, an impact does the crowd have you know that atmosphere within the oh, yeah. state yeah. Uh, and you know it, it's 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 a, I think it's a great question actually because of course you know one of the things that I, I'm a massive football fan yeah. and the idea of watching games on the tv it without the the crowd yeah. it seems to be somewhat of an artificial experience but as a competitor how much of an, an impact do you think that will have on um, players and, and people who are competing. Yeah, it is an interesting question. I hadn't, well, I hadn't actually really thought about that, but it, it is, I mean, it's the only reason that you perform better in competition than you do in training because 
when there's no crowd it's effectively like a training session because certainly in my event you're not really being um directly affected by your competitors so it, I always used to th so if my best was 66 if I threw over 60 in training then that was a great day I invariably didn't um because you just don't have the adrenaline and the um I mean you could say that this is the Olympic Games but without a crowd you just have to then find your own sort of intrinsic motivation and have nothing from outside so yeah the atmosphere is you know is crucial really and there are certain stadiums where which is why football fans don't like athletics tracks around the, around the outside of football pitches because you do want, as an athlete, you want the crowd to be as close to you as possible and vice versa, I think. So certain stadiums have better atmospheres than others, even if they look the same. It's kind of, it's quite strange, but there, there is a massive impact, I think. And footballers, it, it would effectively feel like a kind of Sunday league game or a kickabout with your mates, I guess, if it's not, if there's no crowd, but yeah. yeah. I wonder actually whether it would be a, a bit of a leveller, um, you know, in football particularly. I could see, you know, I mean, I, I think back to, to characters that, that I've been fortunate enough to be in a room and heard speak. And a lot of them will tell you that, you know, an awful lot of the motivation they draw is from the crowd. So, yeah. you know, talents such as Gascoigne, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can't imagine when he was in his heyday um going into an empty stadium and performing at that level i just don't think as you rightly said that adrenaline would be pumping through his body but of course if he comes down uh it gives those less better players an opportunity of uh, of maybe competing a little bit better against them maybe creating something of a a, a a false playing field if i can put it that way but we'll We'll only know when we yeah. see, won't we? Um, there won't be any difference between a home and away game as well, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, and there are those athletes who um, do just come alive in the competition side of things. Yeah. And they're generally your best players. Yeah. They, they yeah. tend to be a bit average in training and it just doesn't excite them. But then they can just turn it on yeah. in competition. So yeah, yeah, you just might not see as much of that, but. Well, we'll see. We'll see where we go. I'll tell you, here's another good question from Patrick. Uh, as a naturally competitive person, how are you staying motivated during lockdown? Uh, having always had an interest in different disciplines, what sports were you getting into uh, before lockdown and look forward to returning to? So anything that you were watching or perhaps even involving yourself in a bit? Yeah, I mean, I watch all sport. Um, it is... You know, I still train not to the same degree, but certainly most days and not being able to go to the gym. It was just up the road, actually. Um, I think I've borrowed some weights from them. But um, that's, I miss that. But actually, I've adapted and just do sort of home workouts and things. But yeah, it's interesting not being able to watch sport. I do think they should just rerun the 2012 Olympics yeah. for two yeah. weeks. I mean, it'd be the cheapest TV ever. <laughs> I don't know why they haven't. Yeah, I wonder why they haven't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, bloody dad's army every every night. Yeah, they? and just rerun and rerun some, you know, classic kind of yeah. moments. Really, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I've never got too heavily into golf, and actually, I'm thinking maybe I should because you can actually go and play golf now. I had one <laughs> golf lesson before lockdown and loved it, and hadn't really ever played so. That might be something to get into but it is a struggle for me i am a bit of a doer i enjoy being busy and doing and 
um I didn't ever want an office job and I have found myself sitting at computers quite a lot which is <laughs> a strong suit so but I've done I'm doing a course just because you can't do a lot else so um but as I mentioned to you before we came on air I've, I've actually got to go up to a building project on Friday which I'm very excited about it'll be my first time out because there's been a plaster shortage in the building trade but I managed to get 250 kilos off a builder friend so I'm driving that up, <laughs> up north but that's that's excite, excitement these days so um so yeah I, I, I think it's a good opportunity though for people to just sort of look at what they want to improve on or what they're not doing in their life that they could be and just um and see how they want to live life moving forward I think a lot of people will be working from home um, and the companies have realized that perhaps they don't need massive offices and I think it would be an interesting change of events and obviously having meetings online you can do much more easily and yeah it's, it's interesting I mean I, I, I love people so I do struggle with not being around people so much but um, but yeah it's certainly going to change I think It'll be interesting to see Goldie, I think, because I think in the initial sort of three, four weeks, there was that little bit of, uh, you know, it was a bit of a novelty. Yeah. And people saying, isn't this great? You know, I can meet people online and I can just, you know, go into the kitchen and make a cup of tea and it's lovely seeing the kids. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, nine weeks on, everybody's ready to kill the kids, uh, <laughs> probably pick the cat and the dog. Uh, and, you know, increasingly people are saying to me, I just want to get back into the position where I can be meeting people because yeah. ultimately we're social animals, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, so as great as this is, and I can see that, you know, if I've got a meeting in London where ordinarily I may have jumped on a train and, and then come back same day, I won't feel as bad now suggesting to somebody a Zoom call. Yeah. Um, but, but equally, I, I don't think that there, there is any substitution uh, for that personal contact and, you know, if you're, you're the sort of person that, that you are, I can imagine that, that you're desperate to get back to that more than anything mm. else, just seeing people, meeting people and getting out and about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in my business, I actually can't do from home, really. So um, so I do have to be out and doing viewings and making sure refurbs are going on and, and making sure builders are happy to work because you can't force people to work, but most of them I do is and they have hated not doing so um so yeah it's an interesting time i think people have probably realized that family life is much more important and it, i think from a housing perspective it'll be interesting to see how many people decide that living out of london is you know why are we living in a flat without a garden and that kind of thing yeah. so i wonder how many people will move i don't know yeah, be interesting yeah, to see. Could, yeah that will be interesting i think it Property game in particular is going to be interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. great point about commercial space. You know, do people need the big offices? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, city centre living, which has been highly promoted um, for yeah. the past decade or more. Uh, as you rightly say, you know, people are stuck in flats or yeah. houses with with no gardens, uh, which is prevalent in London. You know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of houses don't have gardens with them. And London, of course, was the first place to to really be hit uh, yeah. with the virus. So, yeah, we, we'll see. There may well be a, mind, a mindset change in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, final point for me, Goldie, it's been great to, to see you as always. And 
some uh, some great insight into, as I say, the, the mindset of somebody who uh, has achieved great things, both in terms of your athletic career, but now in business as well. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you may at some point think about going into more of an executive side in, in the world of sport. Uh, and I know, you know, there's been a big debate in recent times about how athletics is managed in this country. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the governing body at the moment? Do you think that they're, they're doing a good job? Are we in a good place? Um, we've just appointed a new CEO actually in British Athletics, um, who I've actually spoken to very recently and I've been really, really impressed with. So she was responsible for the turnaround for netball, for taking it from, you know, primarily voluntary sport like athletics and um making sure it got on tv and then obviously they had the success at the commonwealth games and world cup and things and um so hopefully she can do the same with athletics i think there's just been i just don't think there's been a plan for the last sort of 20 years and people do always kind of the cream kind of rises to the top it's a fairly darwinian sport in many ways um but we've kind of lacked a bit of strength and depth and I think that's how you really start to be more successful and there's perhaps been a bit of a lack of investment in coaching which is the primary reason that athletes improve. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how things go um, as we move forward but I'm really excited about her appointment um, when I perhaps wasn't so excited about the uh, <laughs> Covering body prior to that. So, um, so yeah. So I think it's it's kind of an interesting time. Well, on that positive note, uh, I'll say thank you very much for joining us this morning, Goldie, and uh, good luck for the future. Hopefully, we'll be able to get you to a live event. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> be great. Uh, be great to see you again. So, thanks very much for this morning, great. and we'll see you again very soon.